The Rural Health Voice, Episode 83, Finding Your Passion. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What type of person should be a healthcare provider? Melissa Zook, MD, joined me to discuss her passion for serving the community. So welcome, Dr. Zook. Hi. I'm so glad you're able to join us today. Really appreciate your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Yeah. Hey, let's get the way back machine. When <laughs> and why did you decide to become a doctor? MASH. Uh, Hawkeye Pierce is, uh, he might still be my favorite doctor of all times. Um, I just fell in love with him as a kid. Is his... I just thought he was a brilliant character, a brilliant doctor. And I also really loved uh, Doc Baker on Little House on the Prairie, even though I know now most kids these days don't know who either of those two people are. But I always had this vision that I would just take care of people and never occurred to me in either of those situations that money might enter into the equation. I just thought I would get paid with you know, chickens or pies or um, cabbage perhaps. But um it also, I think, occurred to me as something that was probably the thing that you could be, this, that only really super smart people could be. And I thought that that was something that was definitely something I wanted to work towards. I wanted to believe that I could do. Sure. And now you're with London Women's Care. What do they do? They are a, um, they started out as just an OBGYN uh, rural health clinic about, oh gosh, 25 years ago now. And now we have expanded into a multi-specialty clinic. Uh, we have uh, women's health, and then I brought um, family medicine, as we now have pediatricians as well. And we also do uh, behavioral health, and um, a, we have a, a addiction. We do a buprenorphine um, and um, Vivitrol for opiate addiction. And then um, I also now do HIV care, and we do hepatitis C treatment. So, and we just most recently opened a dental clinic. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Hawkeye Pierce, and I loved MASH as well, but I don't remember Hawkeye ever doing paperwork <laughs> or arguing with insurance companies or anything like that. How has healthcare changed over your career? Well, I think that I think that more poop rolls uphill. I, I, I wish that I had never been introduced to the concept of a little recording microphone, the little cassette tapes, and that I could dictate my notes. I wish I had never even known that that existed, or a dictaphone, because I really feel like the advent of EMRs has not at all left us with less paperwork. I just think it shifted a lot of the burden of the work, and I feel like a lot more um, administrative things uh, come to me now, and paperwork things come to me now, that would have never come to me in the paper era. And while there's certainly benefits to it, it mostly feels like I do a lot more paperwork that other people used to do, but now cannot do and only I can do. And I really, really hate that. Oh, yeah. And why stay in a rural community? Why not go to suburbia where you have plenty of access to specialists and fancy equipment and people to cover on-call rotations? Oh, it would not be nearly as interesting or fun. I, I think that I would be bored to tears if I practiced. I, I probably have as much bias towards suburban medicine as 
suburban practicing physicians have towards rural medicine, I guess. But I keep thinking that there's no way that my life or practice could be nearly as interesting or diverse if I had such easy access to specialists and referrals and um, services. So I really like the challenges and um, I like being able to do everything. And I think I would be bored if I only, if people came to me thinking that they would only ever come to me for referrals or for the most basic things and that I would send them off for everything else. I think that would be very, I think that would make primary care very interesting. And I, I'm not, even though I like primary care and primary care is a lot about prevention and I like prevention, I like full patient care. And I think if I were in a more um, populous place with more resources available to me, people might come to me more for their preventive care, but less for their maybe chronic care. They might be more prone to go to the cardiologist, the endocrinologist and nephrology and all those other kind of specialists um, for their care. And um, I don't think it would be nearly as much fun for me. Well, I don't know that fun counts as addiction medicine, and yet you decided to be board certified in addiction medicine. Why did you feel the need to take that on? Uh, actually, I was coerced into it. Um, <laughs> I will be the first person to admit that I was the last person who wanted to do addiction medicine. And uh, uh, when, I, when I talk about it, actually, usually I will tell people that um, I was so reluctant to do it that when I initially filled in my, after I did my eight hours of waiver training that's required, which I did as slowly as I possibly could, I then um, filled out the waiver application for the DEA. And before I faxed it in, I made sure that I forgot to sign it, thus delaying my uh, application process a good, you know, another six to eight weeks while the government figured that one out. So, I mean, I really went into it kicking and screaming, but it was one of the, um, requests of the my current employer this is my when they hired me they asked me if I would do it and I was like well you know uh, okay you know they basically kind of sold me on it but I was still very skeptical because I had had such bad experiences doing pain management in a rural I had been in a federally qualified community health center for eight years and this was before um, the Affordable Care Act when we had Medicaid expansion and, and people really didn't have there just weren't resources and I really had um had my hands tied by that and so I just really didn't want to it had been really very difficult for me and I just felt like it was going to be the same thing again and I had hoped that maybe I might be able to move my career in a different direction and so I really was very reluctant to start it but almost from my very first patient it's become um, probably one of my favorite things in my practice and uh, probably without a doubt the most rewarding thing that I do in my practice. Great. A previous guest in the podcast talked about the syndemic of substance use disorder, HIV, and hepatitis C, and the need to address all three together instead of approaching them individually. What is your perspective on that? I wholeheartedly agree, um, and that's what I do in my practice, and that's the model that I try really hard to teach and preach, and um, oh, that's a complicated question, but... That's what I do in my practice. You know, that's that's what I believe is what family medicine is all about, is we have the flexibility in our training and the the kinds of people who have curiosity and interest and um, compassion and, and passion for so many different kinds of medicine that it makes it the perfect place to do addiction, HIV, hepatitis, as well as primary care. And then we do it all in the context of family and in the community and in the 
context of social, the, the social determinants of health. And so, you know, I can see somebody who is, um, uh, a woman comes in who's pregnant, who has, um, uh, struggles with opiate addiction, and we can get her on buprenorphine and help her have a healthier pregnancy. And then, um, as a family doctor, she can continue with me for her, uh, MAT treatment, but then she can bring her baby to me for well care. And I can follow them um, as a dyad and see how they're doing together. You know, if I see a healthy baby, then I know I also have a healthy mom, you know, or, and then they'll be, well, you know, my, my boyfriend's really been struggling too. Well, you know, bring him and we'll treat him as well. And, you know, I saw that you were hepatitis C positive during your pregnancy. Let's go ahead and get that treated for you. And they can do everything in one location because transportation, of course, is an issue. Um, being able to make appointments is an issue for financial reasons for transportation issue reasons for just chaos of life issues, um, a, a wide variety of things. And so it, it makes it easier if patients can do everything in one location. Plus I think it makes it easier for me. I know that things are getting done. I know loops are getting closed. I know the documents are there. Um, I know that patient, I know their medications. I know um, what their fears are, what their concerns are. And I know when things get done and when they don't get done. And I know, you know, I have a better sense of maybe why they're getting done or not getting done, which is often a very complicated issue. And then I also know what's going on within the context of several generations of that family, quite honestly, um, generally, not often, but a lot of times I know um, that that person in the context of their family, as well as in the context of their community. And so I think that it's been very successful to, to, to treat, you know, the various sequelae of um, uh, substance use disorders, uh, HIV, hepatitis C, but also the chronic, you know, the diabetes, the COPD, um, have the, the well child visits, have all of that as part of it. Um, I think it's been very successful. I think people are very, I think my patients have much better quality of life. The problem is it's a really hard sell, um, to other providers. You know, I've, I've been in the community for, I've been in this area for 20 years now and I'm, losing hope that I might have someone to replace me because even though I have a lot of students who come and a lot of people are really uh, impressed at the kind of work that I do and the, the, the level of work that I do and the, it's overwhelming to most physicians. You know, most, most people, um, I think most people go into medicine um, feeling very much more like they want to be an expert at one thing. Like they feel more comfortable, um, being an expert in one small, narrow area where they feel like they have com complete competency. It's very, I think it's a much harder to find people in medicine who are comfortable with the not knowing and with the, um, with thinking in a different way, like, okay, I don't know the answer to this, but I know who my resources are. or I know how I can get help for this. And so I think it takes a different kind of thinking to do the kind of medicine that I do. And I, I don't think that we necessarily always um, attract a lot of those people to the practice of medicine. And with all that, uh, many states are now preparing to or, or have recently received a great deal of money from the uh, opioid settlements, the, mm -hmm. the, the lawsuits at the federal level, um, millions upon millions of dollars. What is your hope for how those funds get spent? Well, I'm, I think some of it, you know, hopefully some of it on research that translates into improving or, or demonstrating that 
treating opiate addiction or treating addictions within primary care homes matters, that we don't want to be putting people out. We don't want to be putting people into, um, we don't want to separate these things that it does. People do better and they have better outcomes when they're treated in one place. And I would love to see more of the funding go towards the helping services that really are the things that really help people get back on their feet. Like the thing that would really, you know, be helpful are, you know, more case management services, um, access, helping people get access to fair housing, helping people get access to um, clear up uh, old legal issues, um, helping people get access to decent transportation. And, and while we've made great strides, great strides in those things, um, since I started here in Eutra, Kentucky 20 years ago, those are still, I think, the biggest barriers for people um, in terms of really getting where they want, um, really what where they want to be in life and, you know, our, our lack of adequate housing and just the lack of um, adequate legal resources for people and being able to really connect people in a way that, um, to those resources in a way that's timely and useful. Mm-hmm. And you are also an outspoken LGBTQ ally with yourself and your wife being members of the community. Does that change the way you practice medicine, do you think? Um, of course it does. I like to hope that it doesn't, but, um, you know, it's an ongoing, uh, there's always this debate in medicine about how much you should reveal about who you are and yourself to your patients and what you should disclose and what you shouldn't disclose. And it, it becomes much harder in a small town where your professional life and your personal life are much harder to separate when you go to church with people and you see them in the community and you see them at Walmart, you see them at sporting events. And so um, it's much harder to not be who you are in your personal life with who you are in your professional life in a small town. So it's, it's not something that's, I think um, easily hid and it's not something that I would, I personally would want to hide. So I I do think there's no sense not being truthful about it um, in terms of whether or not when people ask me, I tell them the truth. But I also feel like it really can be helpful to me as a tool, one, for helping um, people feel more comfortable in my office who may be um, wanting to uh, to come out, uh, but who are really afraid of the consequences or the repercussions, um, people who um, have questions about their uh, gender identity or sexual health and um, might be otherwise afraid to ask, But also, I think, for parents and grandparents uh, who really struggle with um, their emotions around their children who are in the LGBTQ community with some of their more um, with their more conservative beliefs and and their frustrations and their anger. And, and, you know, I think when they like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a member of that community or, you know, that's been very hard for my parents or I think having that personal connection. Um, sometimes has, has on several occasions made a difference. Um, and I've actually had my patients come back and say, thank you so much for talking to my mom. That made such a huge difference to her. Um, she really sees it in a different perspective now, or, you know, they can come back to me and say, you know, Dr. Zuck, I just want to thank you for talking to me. You know, you've, I'm not, I'm not necessarily changed my mind, but I'm, I'm trying to be more open about it, or I know I can talk to you about it. And so I, I do think that, um, I'm not, well, I'm not an open book with my patients. I really do think that, um, I think that being open about my, um, my home life, my family life in, from that point of view 
has been mostly a very positive thing. To my knowledge, it's not ever been a negative thing. Um, I'm certainly, if people don't come back, then I don't know it, and that's okay with me. Um, and it's not the only way that I share my family with, with my patients, but it has certainly been, I think, a way that's been very, um, very helpful for people and a way that has made them feel very safe. Last year, VRHA launched our Pride of Rural Virginia initiative, which mm-hmm. is looking to address health disparities for the LGBTQ community in rural areas. What do you think healthcare providers need to understand about sexual identity and gender orientation? They should never make assumptions. I think that's the first, I think making any sort of assumptions about people is, I think it's always okay to, no one ever likes to ask the questions about gender identity or sexuality, but I think it's just so important to ask them because I think making assumptions about people it, it immediately puts up barriers and walls because a lot of times when I'm talking to people, even if I haven't gotten to the point in the interview where I'm, we sort of start talking about more intimate things um, or more uncomfortable things, I can tell that they're uncomfortable. I can tell that there's things that maybe they are struggling with. And I think if you can't, if you create an environment that is very, um, uh, is not very welcoming or very open, then people will, people will, absolutely not tell you the truth. And when they don't tell you the truth, then you can't help them um, with whatever health issue they have, whether it be um, a gender identity issue or uh, depression over uh, that issue or um, a sexually transmitted disease that they might be uh, when you get to see treatment for or um, uh, even pre-exposure prophylaxis for uh, HIV prevention. I can't tell you how many patients that I have had referrals sent to me for um, And the horror stories that they tell me from their primary care doctor about how um, they've gotten lectures on morality and um, I'll do it this one time, but I'm not doing it again. And, you know, the, in terms of writing the prescriptions or, well, I'm not comfortable about this. I don't know anything. I don't know enough about this. Do this for you. You're going to have to go see a specialist or, you know, it's like, you know, this is, this is a, you know, PrEP is a very, to me, a very basic primary intervention, um, prevention, primary preventive step. And so for the treatment that my patients have got who are brave enough to ask for it, um, I, I can see why more people don't ask for it. I, they've been treated quite badly and it would seem many times quite ignorantly by the medical community. And so um, it's, it makes me very sad. And it, sometimes it is very frustrating to me as a physician. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we certainly have seen data on how Abusive treatment by doctors decreases health outcomes for the community overall. That's something we're certainly looking to address. One of the other things that we run into is we find out that people are, you know, afraid to be open with their doctor in a small town because they know their doctor, you know, that might be their neighbor, it might be their aunt, or it might be their Sunday school teacher. You know, you talked before about knowing multiple generations within families, how do we address HIPAA in small town America? That has taken me a long time. And I, I don't have an answer for that other than my experience has been um, tincture of time and evidence over and over and over again that I, that I'm going to hold their secrets because I, when I, like, for example, when I first started doing HIV care, you know, I had a number of patients who um, came to me from counties 
you know, they come to me, well, first of all, I serve a very wide, uh, a very large area for HIV care, but they would have their medications, you know, they, they, they might live in one county and then come to see me, which takes them an hour, an hour and a half to get to, and then they would have their, their medication sent to a, a county, in a, a third county, because they didn't want anyone in their own county to know that they were getting those medications, or they'd have them sent to a P.O. box, or they'd have them sent someplace to a relative, and so, or they would have their labs drawn. They wouldn't have their labs drawn at our office, lest the lab tech see what the lab order said. They'd go all the way to Lexington, or they would go to you know some place where they were felt much more anonymous. Um, or and it, it took people. It also took um, the providers in Lexington a while to convince people that it would be okay to come see a provider in London for HIV care. That you know that it would be that your secret would be kept because obviously the staff knows many of these people. And it's really just been a matter of me um, doing a lot of education with the staff at first, because when we first started doing HIV care in 2013, maybe 12, 13, the staff was very open to not admitting that they really didn't know much about HIV care. And we did a lot of education with the staff and the staff was very, very open and receptive to learning about it. And they have been wonderful with these patients and they've been very open and very knowledgeable and they've been extremely respectful and I tell all of the new um, HIV patients who come in and, and, you know, anybody who's particularly worried about their privacy that, you know, I personally will protect their privacy. And I tell them about the safeguards that we can do to protect their privacy. And if there's anything that they ever feel that someone in the staff does that's uncomfortable for them or in some way violates their privacy, to please let me know so that we can address it. And over the last, you know, 10 years or so, the we really have not, had, we've not had any, fortunately, any big violations. And really, none in, I don't even think that we've had any really mild violations. And we've had people, um, we've had one or two instances where, you know, our staff might have done something that was uncomfortable, but with some staff education that's been corrected. Um, but I now have HIV patients who were like, oh, they get the labs in my office now and they'll get their meds delivered, you know, more locally and there's more and more people coming locally. And so I think that word of mouth is, hey, this is a safe place to go. They're going to treat you okay, you know. And, you know, and I know that my staff would be like, oh, I went to school with that person or, you know, that was my teacher or that was my, you know, my brother's girlfriend or whatever. But the staff has been extremely respectful towards the patients and I think this, the patients over time have responded to that, and they've spread the word that it's this is a good place to go. That they're going to they're going to take care of you, and they're going to respect you. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of practicing what you preach. You and make sure, sir. Yeah, you got to keep showing up. And then when something does happen, you just have to take care of it immediately. And you mm-hmm. know, and um, we only I, I only ever had one person who wasn't even a staff person, but we had one one person who was a phlebotomist in our office um, when we initially started doing HIV care who. Uh, asked for a transfer out of our office and that's it i've never had any staff members who in any way were reluctant to um take care of our our, my hiv or my hepatitis c patients at all they've been wonderful that's great and of course for staffing you need staff and there's much discussion on the local state and national levels about the shortage of healthcare professionals and the need to get more kids interested in healthcare careers what do you think could be done to inspire students to think about health as a career choice? Well, I think personally, for me, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to encourage more non, non-traditional, non-science students to think about careers in healthcare. 
because I personally was somebody who, even though I, I really wanted to be a doctor from the time that I was little on up, it was something that was just, you know, something, a, a career that I idolized. Um, I was science and math were not my strong suits. And, and a lot of my patients will tell you that they're afraid of science and math. And I get that. I'm, I'm afraid of science and math myself. And so, uh, I actually, um, I didn't go to college thinking that I would be a doctor. I really kind of had given up on that dream. And so, uh, I actually went to college thinking that I would be a writer and started out as an English major. And I ended up graduating as an American history and Latin American studies, um, double major. And it wasn't until after I graduated from college that I, um, had a talk actually with my own family doctor that I was like, well, maybe I should give this a whirl and go back. And I really realized that having so much experience with the other humanities, in addition to the sciences, really, I think, makes me a much, it helped, it helped my thinking as a physician, me thinking outside the box, it helped my critical thinking, it helped my research skills. And so I think, um, I really think that we don't do enough to encourage people who are, I think people, kids just assume from an early age, well, if I'm not a super smart kid, if I'm not a straight A student, if I'm not super smart at sciences, then I can't, I can't do this. And I think that we, one of the things that really, I try really hard to encourage students is that it's okay to think outside the box and it's okay to be outside the box and um, that we need all kinds of thinkers in medicine and that there's all kinds of careers in medicine for all kinds of people with all kinds of hearts and all kinds of brains. And so um, I think sometimes maybe we, we pick the, the science, the, the kids who seem to have science and math aptitude too early and we tend to forget about maybe other kids who might also be very good at psychiatry or pathology or uh, family medicine or pediatrics or, you know, something that may be less super technical, but um, require a, a much different uh, way to use their brain. Sure. I think a lot of Americans, you know, when you say healthcare, they think doctor, nurse, and don't realize the full spectrum of healthcare careers out there. Yeah, our local AHEC, and they've not done it with the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, they they would always have a big health health fair extravaganza, and they would invite um, pretty much any kind of health-related career that they could think of, everything from, you know, various kinds of vet tech, vet sciences, mortuary sciences, EMT, firefighters, first responders, um, various kinds of people, lab techs in the hospital, uh, various kinds of nursing careers, phlebotomists, like because the the number of things that you can do in medicine is in healthcare is unlimited, and so there really is a, there's a role for everybody in healthcare, and in the end, it, in the end, it comes down to your interaction with that other person, um, as well as how well you do your job. We can you know we can train you to do this job, but we can't train you to be really good at interacting with your patients and with taking good care of people. And so we need to find the kind of people that really want to be there to take care of people. You wrote an essay recently about how hard it is sometimes to feel like you're making a difference as a physician in a rural community. If a student came to you wondering why they should choose healthcare, what would you say? I think that you should only choose healthcare or you should only choose a career as a rural physician if the career chooses you if you feel like it is a true vocation or a true calling, because it takes too much of who you are, too much energy, too much time, too much brain power, too much emotion, um, too much creativity to do it in a way that's sort of kind of partly there. And so if it's not something that you feel in your 
soul that this is this is what I have been called to do, this is what I need to do, this is what I want to do, then this is not the career for you. Because it's it's not a job I think for me personally that I feel like people can do kind of sort of a little bit and and be good at and feel fulfilled by and not just feel burned out by. You know, the, the best family doctors that I know are amazing human beings in every way and um, and are fully committed to the communities where they work and to the practices that they have. And so the first thing is, it's not a matter of, well, you know, talk me into this. It's like, well, if I've talked you into this, then this isn't the career for you. You, 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 you just, you already need to know that this is what you want to do. Like, you just need to know that this is, this is who you are as, as a person, not something that I need to talk you into. I guess I have two, two kinds of students. I have the students who are sort of like, well, talk me into it, you know, because it, and they're not the students that I, I know will under choose daily medicine. And then there are the students who sort of come, who are a little bit more open-minded, like, well, I'm not sure what I want to do yet, but I'm not sure. And then they sort of see, I think, what family medicine really can be because they may not, being in a, in a big academic center, they may not see the full complement of what family medicine can do. And so once they realize that family medicine can be so many different things, it becomes much more appealing to them. So I think there's this this, this, all, this other subset of, patient, of students that you can, you can capture just because when you show them what family medicine really is all about, they're like, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no idea it would be like this. And, um, and so, um, every once in a while you capture those. Last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare in rural America, what would you do? I wish that all the computers could talk to each other. <laughs> Excellent. It, it would make, that would probably be the single thing that would make my life so much better is if the pharmacy and the insurance and the various hospitals and the various practices, if every if data could move seamlessly from place to place, that would make that would be the that would be well, that would just be the bee's knees. I I think the software designer that figures out how to make that happen is going to be an exceedingly wealthy person. Oh, yeah. Because that would be that would just be the thing that would make my life the most better. Just the concept of bi-directional interfaces with various applications in various places. That whoever we we need to focus on training, finding some young kids who can do those kinds of things who have interest in that because that would make healthcare better. Like just data transfer in a way that's gets information in a timely fashion where it needs to be in the right place at the right time. Oh my goodness, that would be a game changer. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome, Mike. It was fun. That's Dr. Melissa Zook wishing for better computer interconnectivity and data transfer. If you want to hear more from Dr. Zook, she'll be speaking at the Head for the Hills Continuing Medical Education Conference in Abingdon this November. For more information, visit vrha.org and click the link on the right side of the page. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.